This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network and our show, Workers' Comp Matters. I'm your host, Alan Pierce. I'm with the firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano. We practice workers' comp law in Salem, Massachusetts, and today I have the privilege of being at uh, on location at the Bacara Resort in Santa Barbara, California for the annual convention of Willig. And Willig is the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. And we have been meeting here this week to discuss trending issues in workers' compensation. And I'm very pleased to have as our guest uh, in today's show, uh, Charles Chuck Davoli. Chuck practices law with the law firm of Davoli, Krumholtz and Price in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Chuck, for the past year, has served as president of Willig. As of uh, last night, he is now the immediate past president, has done uh, an amazing job as president of Willig, and he's going to talk about uh, some of the real issues that are going to affect and are affecting not only us as attorneys who handle workers' comp cases, but more importantly, our clients and their families who depend on workers' compensation and depend on us. So, Chuck, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I, I've, I've heard you talk on several occasions in the past year uh, as you have carried the message uh, around the country. Uh, where I'm from, Boston, uh, I think of you as sort of Paul Revere, where, you know, the warning is out there. The British are coming. And the question is, how are they coming and where are they coming? And you've, you've got to talk where you really focus on what is really the tipping point, where we are in this 100-year history of the rights of injured workers to get adequately and promptly and justly compensated. So with that, tell us why you sort of feel like you're wearing that tricornered hat and sounding the alarm. What do we need to hear? Yeah, my role uh, both in Louisiana, uh, where my practice is, and uh, and I've kind of adopted the role that I had there for a number of years. I've been in practice uh, about 24, 25 years. Got started late, but... Um, is kind of the guy in the edge of town in the tower. Uh, you know they're coming, uh, and it's a matter of where they're coming, by land or by sea. Um, because uh, when we say they're coming, what we're talking about is a system. It's a private socialized system of benefits for folks who get injured on the job, what we call the course and scope of their employment. And uh, about 100 years ago, uh, there was two principles. Uh, one, uh, what was happening uh, to uh, uh, workers who got hurt, uh, they would have to, in effect, sue their employers. Uh, there was very few attorneys uh, or legal representation. Um, uh, the employers, uh, there were certain what we call common law defenses uh, and basically a fault-based system. And so for uh, an injured worker would get tied up in, in, in effect, litigation for years. Uh, and, and so their recovery uh, to return to work uh, would be uh, delayed until that litigation was finished. Uh, and in effect, um, during that period of time, their family was destitute. And, and a lot of them basically were unable to obtain medical treatment. So 
at that time, society, American society, uh, created the workers' comp system, a no-fault system. didn't make any difference who was at fault, whether it was a negligent employer or whether it was a, um, uh, an inattentive worker uh, that caused their injuries and created the workers' comp system. And in exchange, uh, it was kind of what we call a quid pro quo. Uh, in exchange, the employer uh, was not liable for what, what is construed as general damages, which is pain and suffering, mental anguish, uh, in exchange for a guarantee of medical treatment and uh, temporary wage replacement benefits. And so over the last 100 years, these workers' comp systems developed, both at the federal and at the state level, uh, that provided, uh, in effect, what was considered an adequate and reasonable um, benefit system that would, repla- that would provide wage replacement during the period of uh, disability, or in some cases, in a lot of cases, uh, if, uh, for example, a uh, pipe fitter couldn't return to his trade or a carpenter or a welder, but yet he could do something else, but he earned less money, uh, there could be a period of time for for wage replacement benefits, which is a portion of his lost wages until he got back to his previous wage earnings. But more importantly, uh, his medical treatment, which would get him back on his feet and back to work. Well, unfortunately, over the last 20 years in particular, there's been an erosion Uh, of those benefit systems, uh, what we call, uh, from our perspective, a deform, uh, not reform, but a deform of workers' compensation benefit and workers' compensation systems. Uh, And in fact, after 100 years, uh, workers' compensation systems uh, in America, um, in in many, many states, have eroded uh, to the point where there's no longer a, a reasonable, adequate system uh, the agreement, the quid pro quo in exchange uh, for giving up, uh, uh, let's say, the 14th Amendment uh, rights uh, to equal protection under the law uh, for injured workers as compared to any other civil proceeding. And so it's that erosion, it's that the form of the system that we've gotten to after 100 years that we are now calling the tipping point. Uh, the tipping point is, means we've reached a pinnacle. Uh, I mean, how far can you reduce uh, weekly benefits or the duration of weekly benefits, the wage replacement during periods of disability? Uh, How far can you restrict uh, ratings of impairment uh, that limit recovery for, let's say, anatomical or functional loss of a limb? Uh, How far can you restrict and confine medical treatment uh, by overly burdensome rules and regulations and standards that restrict doctors from treating their patients? How far do you go? Uh, while at the same time maintaining a system uh, that, in fact, is very profitable uh, for uh, employers' insurance companies. In most cases, except for Texas, uh, workers' compensation is compulsory, just like auto insurance. In fact, coincidentally, uh, auto insurance is the most profitable line of insurance out there, and workers' compensation is the second most profitable line of workers' comp insurance in this in this nation. And, and what's interesting, compulsory. Yeah, I was just going to say the one thing both have in common is the consumer has to purchase it. The consumers don't have to purchase life insurance. They don't have to purchase uh, long-term disability insurance. They don't have to purchase unless their lease requires or their mortgage requires homeowners insurance. But everybody who drives a car, everybody who hires at least one employee, has to prof- purchase workers' comp insurance. And as you say, it's it's it is very the most profitable lines. Now, I, you know, keep in mind that the 
the changes that we have seen, and both of us have been doing workers' comp for a, a few decades, a couple of decades and more, I think we both can agree that a lot of what we've seen is cyclical. There are swings. Uh, there was a period of time years ago where the laws, and keep in mind the laws vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but they were heavily weighted in favor of employers and insurers. And then there was a national commission, and then there was a swing to bring laws and benefit levels to adequate levels, and that was perhaps in the late 70s to mid-80s to early 90s, and the last swing, has, as you said, goes back about 20 years. Um, I'm in Massachusetts. We had our workers' comp overhaul. You could call it the form. You could call it reform. Depends where, which hat you wear. It was in 1991, right at that 2024-year mark. We saw benefits go down. Uh, and benefits are really a portion of wages and medical benefits. Those are the two main benefits, is anatomical loss benefits. But that's something we've seen around the country. And, of course, benefits have already gone down. Now I've seen other ways that the legislators and the laws are changing that don't touch benefits as much as other things. So how are insurance companies now saving money or making it difficult for workers outside of the actual benefits they receive? Uh, in my uh, visits this past year, which I made uh, in approximately 20 different jurisdictions around the, around the country, and I gave an, uh, a couple dozen presentations, I had a, I had a uh, the title of my PowerPoint was Coming to a Theater Near You, where basically I reviewed uh, with each of the states that was interested what was happening in this country. In workers' compensation, about half of the benefits now, approximately 10 years ago, the medical benefits constituted for about one-third of, of the benefits paid out in workers' compensation. Today, it's about a 50-50. And in some states, particularly the smaller rural states, um, a proportion of medical benefits to indemnity, which is what we call the wage replacement benefits, uh, is, is actually 60-65% um, in some cases. So the focus... Uh, has been uh, to mitigate cost uh, to employers, uh, to allegedly insurance companies, um, that because because many employers, large employers like, for example, Walmart, Costco, uh, in our state, Exxon Refinery, they're self-insured. Um, they may procure insurance for excess coverage over a certain amount of losses, but basically, you can be you have to have insurance, and you can be self-insured or procure insurance. Uh, but one of the things that uh, one of the focuses of attention in the past 20 years has been mitigating medical costs. And that's where it has been, uh, frankly, uh, which even the casual observer, um, uh, injured workers have become citizen, uh, second-class citizens. Um, you know, under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and every state constitution, you have a right to equal protection. Uh, you have a right to, in, in most health care policies uh, that I'm aware of, including my own, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to qualify for Medicare and I have some supplemental coverage, but I have a right to choose my own treating physician. Not so in the majority of, uh, of states under workers' compensation. And why, why does that save money? Well, a, ch a choice of physician uh, equates to what we characterize as the gatekeeper. Uh, the gatekeeper, which is a, a treating physician, uh, basically diagnoses uh, what the nature and extent of your injury is, uh, may render an opinion as to whether your injury, uh, or, for example, if you have, like all of us who are of a certain age, have pre-existing 
aging going on in our spine. That's why we shrink uh, when we get older. Um, and, and, but you'll have an incident at work lifting or falling or tripping or you know, some traumatic event where you'll aggravate that pre-existing condition. Well, uh, a, a dispute arises to, as to whether uh, that current, if it, particularly if it disables you or restricts your functional capacity, uh, was that accident an aggravating, exacerbating factor? Is your problem just the natural progression of the degenerative condition or whatever? Well, doctors are the ones that render opinions as to whether whatever your problem is, first they identify what the nature of your injury is and whether that was caused uh, because of the course and scope of the nature, you know, some incident that happened at work. So what you're saying is if the employer can direct the employee to a particular treating doctor and that treating doctor is more likely to say that whatever is wrong with this this uh, man or woman is due to pre-existing condition and not the effects of work, that's going to eliminated it as a worker's comp claim. Employee choice of treating physician is is one of the threshold issues in worker's comp. Um, and it should be no surprise, and anybody who thinks otherwise is naive, uh, that insurance companies send you to particular physicians or clinics or, let's say, uh, you know, medical providers because they're, they're on retainer, and, they're, and, and their continued relationship with that, let's say, payor uh, is is based on uh, mitigating loss to that insurer or that employer, right. and so and again that threshold question choice of physician not only determines uh, uh, what the nature of the injury is, the extent of the injury, the causation of the injury, uh, whether you're capable of returning to work, whether that's a full duty return or a modified return to work, and, and other questions, uh, uh, issues that come up in the treatment of the worker. Mm -hmm. uh, what medications uh, might be necessary to supplement the treatment, whether surgery is necessary, whether there's some alternative treatment. And in workers' compensation, we have a whole system of second medical opinions, outside utilization review, independent medical exams. I mean, it's layer after layer, which creates a lot of litigious and uh, controversial questions in workers' comp. And one of the spin-offs of that is one of the dilemmas in a crisis we're facing in workers' compensation uh, is medical providers who are abandoning injured and disabled workers uh, because of the onerous nature of medical treatment guidelines, restrictive fee schedules, uh, uh, just peer reviews by other physicians, and basically they choose they'd rather they'd rather just deal with group health, where you know a patient shows up in your office, uh, you look at you uh, look at the authorized rate with let's say Blue Cross Blue Shield Health uh, the health uh, insurance company, and they treat the patient, they send in their invoice pursuant to the code, and they get paid. Right. That's so in workers' comp. And, you know, aside from cho physician choice, which you've already identified and you've just touched on it briefly, there are some other ways that uh, things are creeping into our system that uh, might sound legitimate, uh, might sound noble, but have uh, in practice a much different effect. And I'm, I'm thinking of treatment guidelines, which there's, there's some necessity to have some limits on types of treatment, but there's also something that has we've found starting to come into our jurisdiction in Massachusetts evidence-based medicine now as lawyers anything that's evidence-based you would think is something we would embrace so tell us just I know we don't that could be a whole show but what is evidence-based medicine and how does it impact on our clients in Louisiana I was an advocate of medical treatment guidelines and aka in other words, also known as evidence-based medicine 
Um, in our system, in Louisiana, we still retain choice of physician, and then you had, the employer had a right to a second op opinion, and then if there was a dispute between the two physicians, you could get an independent medical exam. So you'd have doctor pitting against doctor with different opinions on the issues that I, that I mentioned. Well, medical treatment guidelines, and it, a lot of times what would happen is the treatment authorization would be deferred and delayed while those issues were disputed. The medical necessity of an MRI, for example, to, to let's say, diagnose a soft tissue injury. Um, so medical treatment guidelines were intended conceptually to give some predictability uh, uh, to physicians that if they followed the cookbook, and that's what a lot of doctors call it, they call it cookbook medicine, that if they followed the cookbook and the protocols, uh, that then there, that, that should basically lead to a more expedient, efficient, efficient system, quicker treatment, uh, and, uh, and that was that's the theory. Unfortunately, uh, that has led to a whole cottage industry out there, uh, and and a, and a basis of dispute is is there proper evidence for that? If it's not in the guidelines, our guidelines, for example, in Louisiana, which were replicated, copied pretty much from the Colorado uh, format, uh, does not yet have provisions for treatment of elbow injuries. It's just they, our our physicians committee that helped develop our guidelines haven't gotten around to that. So, and, of course, that gets us to another debate, which is the Bible, so to speak, for this, which is the AMA guides, the American Medical Association guides, to the evaluation of physical impairment and the current sixth edition. At this point, before we get into that, and we really can only touch that very briefly, we're going to take a break, and we will be back with Chuck DeBoli here on Workers' Comp Matters. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Well, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. I'm talking to Chuck DeVoli, immediate past president of the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, a uh, workers' compensation association of claimant attorneys. And uh, we have been talking about the changes that we've seen in workers' comp, what Chuck has uh, termed the tipping point. And we were just talking about um, indemnity benefits, wage loss benefits. We were talking about changes in medical benefits, medical access, physician's choice, utilization review, evidence-based medicine. Um, but when you turn the, we use the term tipping point, um, we've heard a lot here at this conference today about the state of California I'm sorry, the state of Florida. And the state of Florida has gone through, as many states have, a uh, reform or deform of their levels of benefits. And it has reached, uh, at least insofar as the legal process, a tipping point. Describe what's happened in Florida, has happened, is continuing to happen, and where it's likely to lead, in your view. The tipping point analogy uh, addresses the question, do we mitigate or deform or reduce benefits to a point where they're no longer reasonable. And that gets to a fundamental question of equal protection, which is the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And that's what 
in, in Florida. It's called the Paget versus State of Florida case. Our association was actually a participant plaintiff in that, and we assisted in uh, in submitting an amicus brief uh, to the uh, to the trial court. And uh, the, the question is, and it's and it's not just in Florida. Uh, I can uh, having my travels uh, this past year. I think that uh, states like uh, Michigan, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Georgia, um, uh, particularly Texas, uh, have reached a, a similar tipping point, or let's say turning point, but tipping point. How far can you reduce benefits where they're no longer reasonable and adequate in exchange for the exclusivity afforded the employer for their fault and their negligence? Because COMP is a, is a no-fault system. And that's that was the issue framed specifically in Paget and its predecessor case, Westfall, which is still going up the uh, appellate chain. So in Paget, what happened? What well, did the circuit court do? In, in Paget, the, the trial court basically looked at the issue um, in terms of the adequacy of benefits and whether there's a fair, a fair exchange. Uh, and there, there was some, some significant legislative and constitutional changes that predicate that reflect the history uh, behind Paget. In, in Florida, actually up until 1970, they did not have comp as an exclusive remedy. They allowed em- employers and employees to opt out of the comp system. So, for example, if you got hurt for your employer, you, you up until 1970, you could actually choose to, to sue them in a civil district proceeding or a civil court proceeding. Because workers' comp is, is, except for the state of Alabama, every workers' comp proceeding or judicial review of any kind of disputed claim is handled under the administrative branch of those particular state governments. This is an administrative, and it's many times controlled and regulated by administrative rulemaking rather than statutory. They all follow general code of, uh, code of evidence, but it's loosely construed, neither here nor there. The, the Paget decision, the court basically concluded that the benefits and part of it proceeded by this Westfall versus City of St. Pete case, uh, which is in and of itself is a very interesting case, and the Castellanos uh, case, which dealt with uh, access to justice for, by finding attorneys uh, regarding attorneys. The court basically determined that their benefits had eroded to the point where there was no longer an adequate system. And that was one of the issues addressed in the 1972 President's Commission on Workers' Comp, where they set some certain what they recommended as minimum standards uh, for, for benefits. And as uh, a matter of fact, the chair of that commission appointed by President Nixon was Professor John Bort- Burton, and he was one of the witnesses here 40 years later in the trial on Paget. Was he not? Actually, he was a key uh, a key witness, and and one of the other uh, conclusions that came out of President Nixon's commission uh, back in the seventies when they were looking at federalization of the system, uh, which nobody wants. Well, again, it goes back a hundred years, and it's based on a a principle of morality that hey, uh, when somebody gets hurt at work, they need help getting medical treatment, their family needs financial support during a period of disability, and that. That liability should be borne by the, the the sector, which is the private sector, the employer who benefits most from the labor of the injured worker. And that's not a liability or responsibility of the public sector, i.e., Social Security. It's a socialized system, which is very, very unique, but it's based on a private sector liability, and it's based on that concept of morality. So well, the circuit judge in, in Paget basically said the system is so broken, is so inadequate that it's unconstitutional. There's a breach. 
It's breach. a breach of the quid pro quo. It's no longer a reasonable exchange. In that so, case, that case will probably get an intermediate appellate review, but it'll be passed on to the Supreme Court because they have taken oral argument on Westfall. And I, I don't know whether the, you have in your discussions talked about Westfall. We've but, talked a little bit about it. Yeah. But briefly, uh, they, and they have no wage loss benefits uh, you know, like, like a few states. There are very few states now that have wage loss benefits. Uh, so that if you can't go back and be, a, uh, a, let's say, a registered nurse or a carpenter or, uh, or a plumber, and you can't the trade in business and occupation that you trained and that would adequately, you know, uh, f- finance your your quality of life. If all you can go back and and let's say be a greeter at Walmart, you know, that's that which would be a significant wage loss. Uh, most states don't have wage loss benefits. They don't pay any wage differential uh, because of your, let's say, residual disability that you'll never return back to your pre-accident job or your pre-accident wage. So Florida didn't have wage loss benefits. In Florida, uh, they had a, a period of 104 weeks, two years, of where you could have total disability. And then uh, when you reached what's called uh, the magic uh, maximum medical improvement, known as MMI, uh, they would give you an impairment rating, and based on that impairment rating, they had a formula that would equate so many weeks of, of benefits and basically cash you out of the system. And, of course, that benefit rating could be based on a guide, such as the 6th edition or some other in, format that uh, has in, been rich, 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 yeah, recessive. In, in Florida, they actually had their, own, they had their own guideline, but, yes, you're correct. Uh, the 6th the, the edition, uh, which is very controversial, by the way, is used by many, many states, and there are very few states. Louisiana still has wage loss benefits, which mirrors the longshore and harbor workers. The, some of the federal compensation programs have wage loss benefits. But the point is, in the Westfall case, they had a 104-week limitation, and if you didn't reach maximum medical, uh, you couldn't petition for the permanent impairment rating and, the, and that benefit payout until you reach maximum medical. Well, if you didn't reach maximum medical in 104 weeks, they just cut your benefits off. So you got somebody who's still disabled, or still who's having who, a revision surgery or the next right. next surgical right. Procedure. And so they, that case was also declared unconstitutional. So what's happened in Florida is this tipping point, where Westfall, Castellanos, and in, in Paget, where these these benefits now have gotten uh, to the point where it injured workers are second class citizens. They don't have the same civil rights guaranteed under the U.S. and, the, and in that case, the Florida Constitution that every other citizen has in any other civil proceeding. So what's, what's, what's the, what are the remedies? Uh, let's assume the Supreme Court, when it finally gets there, agrees with the circuit court and that the system is inadequate. Therefore, the system is unconstitutional. Is there chaos? I think you're looking at the potential demise of the workers' comp system. I think you're looking at... Um, you know, the public needs to pay attention to this. And unfortunately, it's a little bit, it's somewhat oftentimes seen as a complicated topic. But when an injured worker is denied benefits over some legitimate or prefabricated excuse, and they need medical treatment, or they need some kind of a wage replacement during a, while they're disability, where do they go? If they're fortunate, they may have a spouse who has health insurance. If they're fortunate, they may qualify for Medicare or Medicaid benefits. Now, Medicaid is asset-based, so they basically would be, have to be broke, and a lot of times that's what happened because their, their finances are cut off and they can't pay for their medical treatment. They have to mortgage their, you know, what a few assets, self few assets they have, and they qualify for Medicaid. Well, what does that mean? That means that you and me as citizens, it's called cost-shifting. 
And the best example of that is what has recently occurred in Texas. Texas is a non-compulsory coverage state. They, they call them subscribers and non-subscribers. You don't have to have insurance. They're, they're an anomaly. They're different. But that recent Ebola case in Texas where the nurse basically contracted Ebola because of the hospital basically she was treating that uh, Mr. Duncan who, who died, they're a non-subscriber hospital. So in order for her to recover for a, clearly an occupational exposure and, and a, and a work-related injury, she has to sue them in a, in a personal injury case. Now, she may have some alternative health insurance benefits, but again, all of us who are part of a health insurance plan are paying in that pool, if you will. It's a risk pool. And that's what basically, if, if you have too many people in that pool without paying the premiums in, it's costs us basically more premiums. If, you're, if you have to use Medicare or Medicaid uh, or Social Security disability insurance to basically have the, the means to live, who's paying for that? The taxpayers. And that's a fundamental philosophical shift in terms of what, was, what the principle was at the inception of workers' comp that the liability is borne by the private sector, the employer who benefits most from the labor of the injured workers. Why is it that in the state of Texas, as an example, that the public is not incensed uh, in Texas about this uh, Ebola situation, or for that matter, a couple, uh, about a year and a half ago, because I'm in Louisiana, a neighboring state, uh, that, West that West Texas fertilizer plant explosion, where that was a non-subscriber employer, there were like 10 or 14 fatalities, millions of dollars worth of property damage. Others who were injured and disabled as a result of that, they were a non-subscriber. They had a $1 million liability policy, and they filed bankruptcy. And so, so that liability shifted somewhere, and that's going on all over this country. It's called opt-out. And I think at that point we are going to have reached timeout. And as you said, coming to a theater, you, you everybody out there, whatever state you're in, if it isn't there yet, it, it, as you say, they're coming. We don't know if it'll be by land or by sea, uh, but we need to at least know what's out there. So, Chuck, I want to thank you very much for just giving us a, a really a summary of a much deeper societal issue, something that affects our clients, that affects you and me and our practice and our ability to ensure adequate and fair representation and uh, benefits and timely benefits for our clients. So on behalf of uh, our listeners of Workers' Comp Matters, thank you. And to all of you listening, thank you for listening. And uh, uh, join us for our next Workers' Comp Matters show. I'm Alan Pierce. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.